for the very first time, as far as I know, in my preaching career, I do not want to see your Bibles open. See, because uh, I have a reason for that. Today's passage is an antidote to heresy, and it refutes modern-day speaking in tongues, uh, so-called words of knowledge, visions, dreams supposedly from God, or an angel, or Mary, the mother of Jesus, or any other claimed heavenly beings, or everything else that purposes to be new revelations from God. The passage of today uh, refutes those beliefs and cults that claim they have inspired books in addition to the Bible. But as I said, for the very first time, I think, in my preaching career, I'm not going to read the passage right away, and I don't want you to be cheating. I don't want to give it away. It's a secret passage. The Lord has secrets. This is a secret passage. It won't be secret for long. Uh, It's no fair peeking, but before I read it, I want you to think about something. Of all the messages of the Bible, all the revelations from God, all of the history of his working throughout the ages, his creation of the universe and all creatures out of nothing, all the commandments, all the declarations of his justice in the Bible, his mercy, um, his choosing a covenant people out of the world and his love and his care for them, uh, his long-suffering, Uh, his vengeance upon his enemies and thus upon his people's enemies, Um, the hundreds of thousands probably of promises contained in Scripture culminating in the Gospel uh, that he sent his Son, his only beloved Son, to die for a people who were not his people. As it says in Hosea 2.23, I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. And... Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he sent his son to die for a people who were not his people. Uh, the message of the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to them that believe is central to the whole Bible. Uh, someone once said, if you had to sum up the message of the Bible, one way to do it would be Christ is coming, Christ has come, and Christ will come again because Christ is the central message of the Bible. So my question this morning is, of all these messages, revelations, promises, history, etc., much, much more that I didn't mention, when it comes to virtually the last words of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, what would you suppose that the final message the Lord has for us, the one message it would be ringing in our ears as we close the book and meditate on it. Maybe you'd say, well, he would proclaim the gospel, since that's the central message of Scripture. Uh, one last time to reach the lost or to reassure his people. Or maybe you'd say he'd emphasize our duty as believers to live a holy life. Maybe he'd repeat the Ten Commandments, because they're a summary of God's law. Or maybe he would want unbelievers, he would warn them rather, he'd warn unbelievers that they face eternal punishment unless they believe in Christ. Those are all good messages. Maybe he'd say, well, he would comfort his people with assurances of heaven and the afterlife uh, and reassure them about the world not being our home. Or maybe he would leave us with a reminder he's in control. And no matter what happens to us or what happens in the world, 
that it's all part of his plan, that he works all things together for the good of his people. I mean, those are all great messages, and they're all great guesses as to how God would end the Bible. Any one of them would be probably a fitting close to, to the Bible, at least humanly speaking. And maybe you'd have another great guess. Maybe you're thinking of something else I didn't think of. But that's not what the Lord chose to do. Of all the commandments, all the promises, all the laws, testimonies, reassurances, warnings, proclamations, and all the other revelations the Lord has given us in the first 65 books of the Bible that come before the book of Revelation, of all the over three-quarters of a million words in the Bible that come before the end of the book of Revelation, 770,342 words, uh, by the way, in the King James Version. Uh, I did not count them. But all the, the, that precede the 18th verse of the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, but all the messages he could have chosen to leave us with just before he promises that Christ will come quickly and closes the, the Bible with a brief blessing, he leaves with a solemn, chilling warning. Now you can turn to Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Beginning in verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. See, above all else that the Lord could have possibly said, he leaves us with the commandment to keep our filthy hands off of his written word, the Bible. The preservation of his written revelation, the Bible, is paramount. We are not to add to it, nor are we to subtract from it. Now, by the way, some people say, well, that means only you can't add or take away from the book of Revelation, because it says this book. Well, think about how ridiculous that is. The book of Revelation is part of the Bible. So if you add or subtract from the book of Revelation, you're adding or subtracting from the Bible. So let's get rid of that thought. But why, of all the things that he could have said at the very end of the Bible, such as emphasizing the gospel or encouraging us to stand fast and overcome other things, why would he say this? Well, the answer is very simple. It's obvious if the Bible is God speaking directly to man, which we believe, specifically to his people, the Bible is written for us, and if it is corrupted by man's changes, then the the promises, the commandments, the law, all the other messages, including the gospel, become at best questionable and at worst unreliable because this is where we have it. This is where we know about it. So if man changes it, How would we know that what's right and what's wrong? So that's why not messing around with the Bible is paramount. We'd be left wondering, well, which parts of the Bible are inspired by God and which parts are the words of men that people made up? We wouldn't know, would we? So this is the reason given by many people who don't believe the gospel. And I'm sure you've heard their arguments. It goes something like this. Well, you know, the Bible was written 
centuries ago. The original writings are lost. What we have are copies of copies of copies, who knows how many times. And copyists make mistakes. Some could have made, taken liberties with the wording. Who knows what, if anything, in the Bible is what the original writers actually wrote. That's an argument you hear. You know, I wrestled with questions like that um, and a lot more some 30 years ago. I was a philosophy major. I was looking for truth if, if it actually existed. Didn't know if it actually existed. And I knew I had to find the answers before I could consider believing anything in the Bible. Now, what I didn't know, of course, is that the Lord was calling me, otherwise I wouldn't have been interested in the Bible. Uh, C.S. Lewis observed in a quote we had a couple weeks ago, unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. So what I have to share with you this morning is not that you can reason your way into believing the Bible. That's not my point. Faith is a gift from God. Maybe you've heard me quote Ephesians 2.8 once or twice. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Saying faith is a gift of God. You can't talk somebody into believing in Christ. But that doesn't mean the Bible is unreasonable. Now, think about this. Since God created reason, he created your reason. It follows logically that if he wrote the Bible for us, that it would be reasonable. It wouldn't be obscure and impossible to understand or totally at odds with anything we possibly could could think of. He would write it so that we could understand it. Now, some things are deep, but a child can understand the basics of the gospel. And we don't need to understand everything in the Bible to be saved. If that was the case, nobody could be saved. Nobody understands everything in the Bible. Today, I want to begin to show you the many ways the Bible is reasonable, because God is reason. Our Savior Christ is the Word of God. As you know in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's Christ is God, says the Word was God. The Word, the Word translated Word there is the Greek word logos. And it's actually also, it means logic. So Christ is eminently logic. Christ is logic. Um, But the area I want to look at today as we begin to explore how we get our Bible and how we can answer sincere questions about it. And I want to start a little mini-series so that we can arm ourselves to know how we got our Bible and how we can answer sincere questions that people will have about the Bible. They talk to you, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe it's reliable? And today I'd like to talk about the reliability of the manuscripts, how we're assured that they are reliable, and as I say, how to respond to people's sincere questions about it. Now, the reason that we look at that question is because, as I said, people say, well, you can't depend on it. It was written centuries ago. It was copied so many times. You know, it's not reliable. And the the question is, how can we be sure that our Bible today really is the same as what the original writings, or they're called the autographs, since the technical term for them. How do we know that the Bible today that we have is the same writing? Because the original writing is lost. And of course, that's what unbelievers will attack you on, attack the Bible with. Well, we start with the printed Bible of today. 
Now, I have a King James Bible here, and we'll use this as, as an example. We can take the King James Bible, and you may have a 1599 Geneva Bible. I know a number of you do. Allison certainly does. And uh, we can compare them to the earliest printed Bibles in existence. And you can get PDFs of the earliest Bibles. You know, Gutenberg Bible, for example. Uh, what happens when we compare them? They're virtually the same. We can go back farther. We can go back to the writings of the early church fathers of the 3rd and even the 2nd century, which is in the you know, hundreds AD, 100s of 160 AD and that kind of thing, where they quoted scripture. It's the same thing as we have right in the Bible, same words, same, same scriptures. From there, it's but a few years away from the time of the apostles and the actual writing of the New Testament. So, in fact, all of the New Testament except 11 minor verses can be reconstructed outside of the Bible from the writings of the early church fathers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. The entire New Testament except for 11 minor verses can be reconstructed from the writings of the early church fathers. There's no doubt at all that our New Testament is the very same New Testament that was written originally. And the Old Testament, what about the Old Testament? Well, it's identical with the Hebrew scriptures of the Jews today. You go to a, a, a synagogue, and their Torah and their Law and the Prophets uh, is the same as what we have today. The fact they've always used the same Bible as they do today is proof enough that what we have is the same book for the centuries. Now, the scribes, the Hebrew scribes, of centuries ago. You know, what they had was the manuscript. What they had was what Moses wrote. Now, it's, it's believed that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He, God gave him the revelation of creation, and he wrote the book of Genesis. And he wrote many of the books of the Old Testament. And they had the original that, that he wrote originally, way back when somebody had the original. And they had the original what Isaiah wrote, and Jeremiah, etc., and they had scribes, copyists, very well-educated, very devout men who were the copyists. And their job is they didn't have printing, so they had to hand copy everything. They didn't have typewriters or computers or printers or anything like that that we had. They had to hand write everything. So these scribes, these Hebrew scribes, they were aware that they'd been chosen for a very great honor, one of the greatest of honors that could have been done, preserving God's very words. What's interesting is that they had a fail-safe system to preserve the minutest accuracy of those words. First, they were highly trained, and they believed that God had given the very words. Uh, they were not unbelievers. They regarded their job as the highest of callings, handling the transmission of God's word, God's revelation to the generations. So no unbeliever was ever given the job. Number two, they were required to speak every word aloud before they wrote it down, before they copied it. Nothing was written from memory. Third, they counted every word and every word had a number assigned to it. On every manuscript, every copy, it was the same number for each word. Fourth, they did exactly the same with every letter. Every letter had its assigned number. Fifth, they knew what 
the word was that was exactly in the middle of the Torah. And they knew what that was supposed to be. Okay. So when they finished copying a sheet, they counted the words to make sure that each word was the right word and it had the same number as the, as the master. Then they, copied, they counted each letter to make sure each letter had exactly the same number as the master. So that there was absolutely no discrepancy whatever between the copy and the master manuscript. If they were off even by one number, they'd destroy the copy and they'd start over again. See, that's why there were never different versions of the Old Testament in Israel. Never any questions about the reliability, the authenticity of the scriptures. They didn't have different versions. They had one version. One software engineer for 17 years wrote, quote, I can personally vouch that the scribes' methods, he's talking about the ancient Hebrew scribes' methods, of protecting the text is more rigorous than the common checksum methods used today to protect software programs from corruption. More rigorous than what we've invented today to protect software programs from corruption. (coughs) You probably know that a jot, or a jot, J-O-T, or in Greek, iota, is the smallest Hebrew letter. A tittle is a tiny accent mark, like in English we have serif, and sans serif, well serif is that little fish hook on the, on the end of a letter. It, the theory is it makes it easier to read the eyes, kind of get, it's easier to read serif writing with these little fish hooks that the eyes get, a, get hooked on, if you will. Um, well, that's a tittle, that's like a tittle in Hebrew. It's a tiny little accent mark. And by the Lord's care of preserving the ancient manuscripts from error, this, this system that I described to you, the promise of Christ is reflected in that. Remember in Matthew 18, he said, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot nor one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Not one little accent mark will be left out of God's written revelation. You know, there are thousands of existing Old Testament manuscripts and fragments that agree with each other. In addition, those texts substantially agree with what is called, and you may be aware of, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Now that was translated to Hebrew from Hebrew to Greek sometime during the 3rd century before Christ. Septuagint means 70 in Latin. It's a Latin word for 70. And it's because 70 Jewish scholars were commissioned uh, to do this uh, by uh, a man named Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the ruler of Egypt. And he had these Hebrew scholars, uh, excuse me, Greek scholars, uh, translate uh, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And that was uh, the one that was known in Christ's time uh, by the Greeks, the Greek speakers. Uh, that, was, that was the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, Ptolemy Philadelphus was uh, Cleopatra's son by Mark Anthony. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we live in an amazing time. 1947, which wasn't that long ago. I know it sounds like centuries ago to you, but it wasn't that long ago. Oh, I don't remember. But 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The shepherd boy in the cave uh, in, the, in Israel uh, just 
discovered he wasn't in. We discovered a cave in Israel and had all these pots in it, and nobody had been there in 2,000 years or more. And they found out these scrolls were in there, and these scrolls were of the Old Testament, lots of the Old Testament. A profound testimony to the reliability of the centuries of transmission of the Bible text. Every Old Testament fragment found in those scrolls was virtually word for word with the Bible that you have in your hand. And the few differences were obvious slips of the pen or variations in spelling. But the strongest testimony is that that the Bible is the very words of God and we're dealing now with the Old Testament, is that the Lord Jesus Christ repeatedly told us it was. In all his teachings, he referred to the divine authority of the Old Testament. Uh, And this will be on your handout, but in Matthew 5, Matthew 8, Matthew 12, Luke 4, Luke 10, Luke 15, uh, Luke 17, Luke 24, John 5, he quoted the Old Testament and referred to it as having divine authority, being from God, the oracles of God, uh, telling people, don't you know what scripture says, you know, etc. He quoted the Old Testament at least 78 times uh, from many books of the Bible, uh, from Genesis to Malachi, he quoted, quoted them both. He referred to the Old Testament as the scriptures, uh, the word of God, the wisdom of God, the apostles quoted from it hundreds of times and considered it the oracles of God. Uh, The Old Testament in hundreds of places predicted the events of the New Testament and the New Testament in fulfillment of that testifies to the genuineness and authenticity of the Old Testament. And both Testaments have to be considered together as the Word of God. There's no such thing as a New Testament Christian or something like that. It's the Word of God. As Augustine wrote, the New Testament is in the Old Concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, there are about 24,000 known copies and fragments of the New Testament. 5,366 of them are complete New Testaments. Some portions, some of these fragments, date as early as the 100s AD, the 2nd century. Unlike any other ancient writings in the world, the time between the original writings of the New Testament and our earliest existing fragment is 25 years. That is by far the shortest period of time between the original writing and the earliest uh, piece that we have today. Compare that to books scholars trust every day. If we say we can't trust the Bible because it's old, then we can't trust books claiming to be written by Plato. We have only seven ancient manuscripts for Plato, the earliest one dated 1,300 years after he wrote. The Bible is only 25 years after it was written. The manuscript evidence of the Bible far surpasses the manuscript reliability of any other ancient writing. After the Bible, the best-preserved book of all antiquity, after the Bible, is the Iliad by Homer, the most renowned book of ancient Greece. All scholars agree it's the second best preserved literary work of all antiquity after the Bible. Non-believers would call it the most, the best preserved. 
It has 643 manuscripts and fragments that we have discovered, they have discovered to date. How many does the New Testament have? 24,000, over 24,000. The time between the original writing of the Iliad and the earliest manuscript fragment we have, 500 years. The time between the original writing of the New Testament and the earliest manuscript fragment is 25 years. There are about 15,600 lines of text in the Iliad. It's very big. 764 of those lines, or over 5% of the entire text, are questioned by scholars as to whether or not they were in the original. 5%. Over 5%. There are about 20,000 lines of text in the New Testament. You know how many are questioned by scholars as to whether they were in the original? 40. Less than one quarter of 1%. Again, the manuscript evidence for the Bible far surpasses the manuscript reliability of any other ancient writings. Yet the Iliad is universally accepted as Homer's work. But the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is continually under attack as unreliable. Now, there are slight differences in the biblical manuscripts. Nobody denies that. Most are obviously an error of one copyist that was later corrected. Things like that. You might find one manuscript with some little thing that's different, but all the manuscripts after that had corrected that error. In absolutely no cases are there any differences that affect any doctrines, any teachings. No other written work of ancient times has been transmitted with such care and therefore as accurately as the Word of God, the Bible, has been. Modern scholars who have spent many years in study and research are agreed that the copies of the original documents have been handed down with virtually complete correctness. Dr. F.F. Bruce, many of you may know that name, very respected evangelical scholar, one of the great Bible scholars, wrote, quote, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. No body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. That was in our bulletin this morning. As someone wrote, if God kept his promise, then what we need to do is simple. Have archaeologists find all the copies and pieces of copies they can find that have survived from ancient times. If God kept his promise, copying errors will not have polluted the text. When we compare the copies from churches all over the ancient world, we'll find they agree that they all had basically the same text. If we occasionally find a copy that doesn't match the others, we'll throw it out, knowing that it was made by a sloppy copyist. Somehow got through the the, the copy. So this has, in fact, been done. The Old Testament Hebrew text was preserved by the Levites and the, the, the scribes. The apostles quoted it. We can trust it. Jesus quoted it. We can trust it. For the New Testament, of all the copies in existence today, over 95% all agree in an incredible way. Remember, all the New Testament except 11 minor verses can be reconstructed outside the Bible from the writings of the early church fathers going back to the 2nd century. Reconstruct the whole New Testament except 11 minor verses just from the writings of the church fathers. So God kept his promise. See, all we have to do is put together 
a Hebrew and a Greek text made up from our overwhelming majority of ancient texts, and we'll have a text that we can be confident is exactly the same as the one held by the early church. And that text is called the received text, or the textus receptus. This was a text used by devout translators like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, and others, Wycliffe, some of whom died to preserve the scriptures. So if they were going to have to die for it, they better be right that they're dying for the right text. They better be assured, and they were. So you can fully trust the Bible. But which version? See, today, unfortunately, we live in a time with back at the time of the pilgrims and the, the Puritans, they had the Geneva Bible. They didn't, they didn't go to the store and have, you know, 100 different versions of the Bible to, to pick out of. Uh, well, today we, we have so many different versions, a lot of Christians are confused. Well, they can be broken down into two schools, basically. Formal equivalency or dynamic equivalency. And dynamic equivalency is people will look at the, look at the uh, manuscripts and they will write down what they think the message is. And they're not too concerned about being literally word for word. Uh, and that's basically, if you want to get kind of loose with it, that's somebody's opinion of what the Bible says. You know, the Good News Bible is a perfect example of that. The man who wrote the Good News Bible sat with his King James Version on the commuter train uh, from the Chicago suburbs every day uh, and read the King James and he write that, wrote down what he thought it said and published it as the, as the Good News Bible. So that's, uh, uh, that's dynamic equivalency. So the question is, which version can you trust? The short answer is to use a faithful translation based on the received text. Remember, the received text is the, this ancient text uh, that these men use. It's the basis of the King James Bible. It's the basis of the 1599 Geneva Bible. Uh, with some reservations, we don't need to go into them, uh, the New King James Bible. Well, there's a lot here. There's a lot more. The information is easily available. As I said, it's, I'd like to start on a, a little mini-series on, on the, the scriptures, uh, the reliability of the scriptures, and today we've looked at the manuscripts. But we don't put the Bible in the court of public opinion or the court of judgment of unbelievers. We're not appealing to men's corrupt reasoning powers. I've reviewed this for several reasons. One is to encourage you and embolden you to know that your faith is not groundless or unreasonable even by worldly scholar standards. And second, to teach you how to expose this argument. Well, who knows what, if anything, is uh, actually in the Bible is what the writers actually wrote. It was centuries ago, and they're copious. So, you know, how could we know it's for sure? Sure. That's another reason I want you to know these facts. That those kind of arguments are made by ignorant people who haven't bothered to look at the facts and the history, or they refuse to look at the facts and the history. At best, it's simply an excuse to run from God. So the evidences I've given you are, are not going to convert unbelievers because unbelief is not from a lack of information. Unbelievers are not unbelievers because they just don't have enough information. Unbelief is rebellion against God because God puts it into, into everyone's heart. He says in the scripture that, that he exists and there is a God and there's punishment for sin and the basic knowledge of right and wrong. And to, to not accept that is rebellion against God. It's not just you don't have enough information. Uh, 
we can be assured the Lord has not allowed and will never allow the Bible, his revelation, to become corrupted or unreliable. And to think otherwise is to believe that God can't be trusted, which is blasphemy. Remember, Christ promised he would not leave us as orphans or fatherless in in John 14. I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you fatherless. You can fully trust the Bible. The Lord has preserved his word through the centuries for his people. But to close, we would with Psalm 12. Beginning in verse 6, and that will be the close of the sermon. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's go to David prayer. Indeed, we, uh, we do pray that uh, thy word will be kept pure and trust that the Bible that we have today is the revelation from thee. And uh, the scripture cannot be broken as Christ promised. Not, not one jot nor tittle shall pass from it till all be fulfilled. And so we thank thee, Lord, for this gift straight from heaven. When we look at the Bible, let's think of it because that's what it is. It's a gift directly from heaven. It's not something that men just sat down to decided to write and sat down one day and put this together. It's, they were inspired directly from thee, so the Bible is a gift from heaven. And let us treat it as such. Let us study it diligently, read it, meditate on what it says, pray about it, and let it just reach us deep down into our soul, that we infuse it, we absorb this God's holy word, the Bible. And let us never dare to add or subtract to it, Father. Father, we thank Thee, too, for the rain that Thou hast given.